Hey, welcome to Ask a Pastor. This is a podcast that we do just to interact with any questions that you may have. Uh, It's been great to see so many reactions and questions. If we haven't gotten to yours yet, we will try in coming episodes. I think we're releasing an episode every Friday right now, so we will get to that. If you have questions, you can send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com, and we'd be happy to interact. So today I'm joined by Jenna Bajuzic. This is Jenna. Jenna has been part of the staff here at Orchard Hill since I think 2008, uh, working with uh, student (laughs) ministry that whole time. She's a mother of three. Uh, wife of one, and so it's been... Thanks for, uh, clar- thanks for clarifying uh, it, that. that yeah, good. that's, uh, you know, we like to keep things straight. And uh, Jenna no has, uh, has just faithfully served a generation of students here. And one of the things we say from time to time is that one of the great mission fields that we have as a church uh, at Orchard Hill, all three of our locations, is caring for the next generation. Literally every year we have hundreds of kids come through here, if not a thousand plus um, between all the different ministries that we have. Uh, actually, it is more than a thousand every year that, that we get a chance to build into that literally end up all over the world uh, somewhere down the line. And so when you've done 10 years of student ministries, now those kids, kids are, uh, are through and doing all kinds of fun and unique things all over the world, and we've had a chance to impact them. So, so Jenna is uh, going to interact here about a few questions. So here's the first question. Uh, what would you say to a parent that lost their child to heroin? I met parents who told me their child was saved and baptized, but then fell into heroin. Many blame God. And then here's probably the kind of question below the question. They said, I feel it's another way the enemy is destroying our country and using it as a tool to make parents become angry with God. I'm seeing this and I pray, though it saddens me. So, uh, so I'm sure you've, um, in your years, I know you in your years have dealt with, with drug issues, drug addiction, even, yeah. even deaths that have been a result of that. Yeah. So, so what would you say to a parent who comes to you and first just says, this is what's going on, but then even more, I'm mad at God. And in a way, that really broadens the question from being a question about drugs to anybody who says, yeah. I'm just upset that God hasn't worked in something I've prayed over and over and over again that God would work yeah. in. What, what's your reaction? Um, I think, first of all, you don't say a whole lot because that's a mom, that's a dad that has lost their baby. And I think first, before we start offering answers, we have to grieve with them and uh, acknowledge the tragedy that has happened. Um, But I think this question of why would God allow these bad and terrible and destructive things to happen to what you would consider a good person, a good kid, um, or even someone that you might not consider that way, but why would God still allow these terrible things to happen, but, and that's a question that I think, I know I work primarily with middle school students, and it is constant. I think that's something that everyone really deals with, Um, but God just lost their baby too. You know, I think God is always heartbroken at, at the, the evil that is so pervasive, in people's lives. And I think, I mean, drugs is part of that. You can think of any number of other things that are going on here and and around the world where people are losing their lives, where people are losing their dignity, where people are losing their freedom. And there is just, there's so much brokenness. Um, 
But I think really if, I would say to the person that asked this question, if this is something that breaks your heart and you know that it breaks God's heart, um, then learn from people who are already at work coming alongside of these folks who are struggling. Um, Learn how to do it well and help to become a part of how God brings hope and healing Mm -hmm. to people who are really struggling with things that grip them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. There's, uh, you know, the important part, I think, about what you just said is don't start with trying to answer the question. I think a lot of times what we do when we're confronted with real pain is we say, well, let me come up with an intellectual answer. And and usually what's best in an interpersonal setting is to simply say, I'm with you, I feel with you, I hurt with you. Yeah. Um, not, here's an answer that solves it. Uh, now, I assume in this context that, uh, that when somebody asks the question, there's, there is personal pain. Uh, in fact, this person said it, but there's also an intellectual answer that they're asking for. And mm-hmm. so here, here's something that, that I've found helpful over the years when when something happens to somebody that appears either random or even calculated, because Jesus addresses this once. This is Luke 13. Um, It says this, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans' blood who Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered. So, So what had happened evidently was Pilate had had some people killed who had gone to worship. Uh, So pretty awful. In other words, they went to church and they got killed. Um, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Jesus answered, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. And then Jesus adds to it. He says this, verse 4, or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell. So there was one that was calculated, one that appeared random. He, he said this, he said, uh, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? In other words, the people who didn't have the tower fall on them. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And I think what, what Jesus did when confronted with this question was he turned it and he basically said, said use tragedy to say this life isn't everything and it points to something bigger and that is that, that, that repentance actually leads us forward beyond this world to say, as tragic as this is, don't equate bad things happening to good people or good things to bad people or however you yeah. want to slice that with somehow being the way that God works in things. Yeah. But that we're all sinners. We live in a broken world, a fallen world, a sinful world. So bad things do happen. And every time you see a bad thing, let it point you to the eternal realities and to saying this world is not my home. I was not intended just to live here. And, and although that may not be helpful right in the moment when you say, I've just seen somebody lose a child to heroin and now I'm mad at God, what it does is it says, says we weren't just created for this world. And so, so what I would say is start with the heart, start with uh, just sitting with people. But if, if you really are pressed to give an intellectual answer, mm-hmm. um, to try to move to, to something like that, what Jesus has said. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on that? Um, addiction can happen to anybody. And there are addictions that will destroy your life. There are addictions that will destroy your life internally and no one sees it. Mm-hmm. And there are addictions that will wreck everything around you. And it's not that one person's brokenness is worse than another person's brokenness, but this is 
but by the grace of God go I. Yeah. You know. Yeah. If you're a parent, uh, I would add this, and that is, if you suspect that something isn't right, don't sit on it. Um, address it. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is not every time you have a suspicion that you go ask your child, but what I mean is, is if you sense that there's something off, there probably is something off. And so find a way to have the conversation, find a way to probe, find a way to talk about it and get help sooner. Because certainly once you start dealing with, with drugs, the strength of heroin or any kind of substance like that, um, it's not an easy path back. So the sooner it gets addressed, the better chance you have of actually um, turning the tide back. Um, but, but again, I think the, the other point is just to say, ultimately, um, it isn't God that causes that. And, and that's uh, part of this. Here's a question, Jenna. Uh, why is the fourth commandment about Sabbath keeping basically not kept by Christians today? <laughs> is it still binding? If so, what would it look like to keep it? So, so the question here is basically, you know, we have these Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Pretty good ideas, pretty good laws from God. Do these things. Like a good idea. And, and yet it seems, I, I think what this person's saying is that, by and large, Christians don't really keep the idea of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, so what say you? Um, I sure hope that it's still binding <laughs> because I'd like, I'd like the other ones to still be binding about, you know, not murdering people and things like that. Um, I don't think that you get to pick and choose what commandments of God you'd like to follow. I think if, if you're a person of faith who is committed to, to following God, you follow him even if what he asks you to do is difficult. And I think there are some of God's commandments that are easier for some people to keep than others. And especially in our modern world with all of the pressures of busyness and accomplishment and you get, I mean, if you, if you kill someone, I sure as heck hope that there are severe consequences. But if you're busy, you get praised. You get applauded for, oh, look at you, you're working so hard. Uh, you're so committed to that, you know, the things that you're doing with your time. Um, and so it doesn't seem as bad to not do it. It doesn't feel like, oh, well, there's not, there's not all these negative consequences. But I think that the, the difficulty of following God's commands is what points us to the need for Jesus, saying, I, I can't do all of these things. Um, and, but as to what would it look like to practice Sabbath, this is something that I personally was very bad at for a long time. Um, and I have all the excuses in the world, you know. Uh, my husband and I have slightly different schedules. We've got little kids, all this stuff. Um, but once we really started to carve out some time, it has released me from this, the pressure of busy in our lives, and I think that it has really opened up our family to experiencing God and each other in a much more rich and beautiful way. Um, Like, our family doesn't do Sabbath necessarily always on Sunday, because I work on Sundays. Um, So, you know, Saturday mornings are slow. My husband goes to his Bible study in the morning, and Mike, the kids and I have a slow morning. We've got pancakes. We read a Bible story together. We talk. 
And we try to just spend some intentional time diving into the things that God values of honoring him and resting and really acknowledging that no matter how hard we work, you're never going to get to the end of the to-do list. And I think that if at the end of your life, your eulogy is they accomplished everything on their to-do list, that's, that's a waste. Um, and I don't think any of us really, truly deep down want that, even though it seems like that is what we want because that's what we keep chasing. Like, oh, well, I, I can't rest. I can't go to church. I've got this to do. Or, or, you know, we've committed to all of these extra activities and things and running around. And when we have that pattern of rest and Sabbath built into our lives, it leads us towards a greater dependence on God and the acknowledgement that the to-do list, the busyness, all of the extra commitments are not what life is really about. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question in that um, it, certainly it's transitioned a little bit from the Old Testament to the New Testament, more so than probably any of the other Ten Commandments. I mean, just theologically, you mm-hmm. say, you know, Jesus in Mark 2 talks about, hey, the Sabbath is, you know, basically for man, not the other way around that mm-hmm. man for the Sabbath, which is his way of saying, and, and if you read the text there, it's his way of saying, don't get obsessive about rules about this. Um, this was given to you as a gift. And, and I think that's the important thing to remember is, yeah. that, is that the idea of this is God saying, as he had a pattern of working six days, resting one, he wants... Uh, human beings to say, take a day to remind yourself that the world doesn't need you to work all the time, that, that everything won't fall apart if you take a day off, and to build in some rhythms around worship and rest. And I think there's a couple mistakes that, that people can make around the Sabbath, basically, or the idea of, of worship and God, and that is you can reduce it to an hour. You can say, if I go to church, then I've done my, my Sabbath and I use the rest of the day to get done everything else that I need to do. And then it almost becomes and a checkbox. That, that's right. It's like, hey, I just, I just, I made it to church there. I did what I need to do. I'm, yeah. I'm obedient. I think that's a mistake. I think, I think it's also a mistake to, to um, write church out of it. And what I mean by that is I think for some people, they've turned this just into rest and recalibration. And it doesn't have a lot to do with the rhythm of public worship and of being part of a community mm-hmm. of faith and, and saying, I, this is a day that is first and foremost set aside to worship God, mm-hmm. secondly for my rest. And, and people have turned that around, I think, in a lot of cases. Uh, and, and then I, I think the, the other danger is that, is that some people can, can, can almost extend the concept beyond kind of what, what it probably is set out to be. And, and I like how you said, you know, sometimes you, you have to move it off of the day for you because you work at the same time you know you probably half the weekends you have a sunday night commitment half of them you don't uh in a sense i work on on weekends but in another sense i'm here worshiping just like everybody else and if yeah. people worship and serve they're here as much as i am and so you know i look at it and say generally when i go home on sunday again a little different if you're coming back but that's when we try to say, let's not use the rest of the day just to achieve what we achieve the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Let's take that time. So, so to say, worship is first, and then taking a day to just simply say, we don't want to just live like we live the rest of the week. Yeah. Now, does that mean that sometimes you don't do dishes or mow a lawn or clean a house? Probably not, but it means if you if let that become in. your way of living... Yeah. where you're just using the day to accomplish everything else, that, that you're not receiving the gift that God intended yeah. that to be. 
And, and so to me, that seems like what that's about. And, and so um, to, to figure that now, sometimes for some people going out and doing their garden on a Sunday afternoon feels very restful. It's a way to um, reconnect with God and nature and yeah, and di- the different order things. Of things. And that's yeah. where I think taking Jesus' words matters to say this isn't created to stop you from doing stuff as yeah. much as it is to say this is a gift. I want you not to use this day the way you use every other day. Worship me, rest, reconnect with family. Yeah. Let that be what this day is. And, and, yeah. and when I say sometimes people expand it too much is it's like, well, if I do anything on Sunday, then I've got to have another day or I've got to do this or that. That's, that, that's where all of a sudden it's like, okay, you're getting, um, I don't know what exactly, rather than just saying, this is just a gift. Worship me, serve yeah. me, and then take some time to reconnect. And if, it's something I th- and if it's something that's really difficult for a family because of, again, prior commitments, it's, you know, their sports schedule or whatever, I, just try it once mm-hmm. and don't be like well oh yeah we tried it this week and we were too busy so we yeah. can't do this well and if you've been around orchard hill you've probably heard me go on this little personal rant of mine <laughs> and that is youth <laughs> commitments are anti-family and anti your ability to worship on such a high level that that if i could say anything to young parents it is guard those commitments they do not need to be in peewee everything from the time they're three in order to be well-developed. Um, I put my kids in stuff. I'm all for stuff. But, but sometimes we would be better served as families to say, let's take the two hours we were going to drive across the county to you know, go to ballet lesson or music lesson or whatever and spend the time together. And, and I really think that that, um, especially around Sundays, has become an issue where there's so many activities that compete for the worship. And, and here at Orchard Hill, we obviously have the Saturday night service to try to even accommodate that, to say, hey, if you can't make Sunday, come on Saturday, do different mm-hmm. things. But, but, but that's, that, that's, a, that's a challenge. Yeah. Jenna, here's a question. Uh, this person writes, I've been coming to Orchard Hill for a while. I love the sermons. Thank you. Um, and the services and being part of the nursery care. I've been reading the Bible from cover to cover, second time through, and this is my question. Why in the Old Testament is God so angry and vengeful? At least it seems that way to me. And then in the New Testament, so loving and giving. I know through my faith, my belief, and in my heart that God is so good, loving, and giving. I am his child. I don't understand fully why he's so angry and then so loving. And I would guess this is not unique, a unique question to this person. I would think working with students, you get that kind of question All frequently. So what's your, uh, <laughs> what's your reaction to kind of the God in the Old Testament is is vengeful and angry, God in the New Testament's yeah. loving. Well, first of all, way to go for actually reading the Bible cover to cover for yourself. I think that there are so many people that just rely on what people like us say mm-hmm. um, instead of seeking it out and reading it for yourself and even reading through the parts that aren't the easy parts to read. Um, I would say that's an incorrect interpretation of Scripture. I don't think that God is angry in the Old Testament and loving and graceful in the New Testament. I think that there are things that God is angry about throughout the entire Bible, and there are things that God, and you can see evidence of God's love and grace throughout the entire Bible. I mean, starting in Genesis 3, God has a plan for redemption that is Jesus to the brokenness of this world. Um, And that is a thread that weaves its way throughout the pages. Um, I think the things that God is angry about, because um, I know that, it, yes, there's a lot more 
percentage-wise, I guess. <laughs> there's a lot more war, especially um, in the well, Old Testament. Well, there's certainly times where it seems like God came in and wiped people out. Yes. And, you know, he sent a flood. Yes. Which, which seems kind of um, petulant. It's not something that I would recommend to, like, it's not something that really people say, well, this is what a good person does, is say, hey, go, kill all those people. But I think what we need to, to look at is the context of, of what these people were doing and what their culture was. I think they're, whenever God brought the Israelites into the promised land, the kingdoms and cultures that surrounded them were full of people that would not acknowledge God and full of just terrible evil practices that God said, I don't know if I really want these, like there were, there's worship. But how worship. is that different from today? I, I mean, if you're, if yeah. that's the criteria, then why is there not mass judgment from God today? I would say that there is, it's just different. Okay, how's it different? Um, I, w I mean, back in the Old Testament, God primarily worked through his one community of the Israelites, and then primarily. Okay. But, um, I think that there is judgment in the consequences, and you even see that in the Old Testament. The Israelites were sent into exile as consequences of how they were changing the ways that they wanted to worship God. Um, and I think that there are, we experience the consequences of our sinful choices every day. Um, and the, the wars and things in the Old Testament, especially if we're talking about that, is one of the ways that God let them, God let, God let those communities experience the consequences of their sinful choices. Okay, okay. Yeah, it, this is a hard question because when you read the Old Testament, there's no question that, that you see some things where you say, what in the world? Like, what kind of a loving God would do this? And, and I think where, where we get tripped up is in our definition of loving and angry. Mm -hmm. um, anger righteous anger, not, not human petulant anger, but righteous anger is an anger that is directed at protecting something. So for example, if, if I'm at home one evening and a burglar comes to break into my house and harm my family and I get angry, that's a righteous anger. If I, on the other hand, get angry because somebody insults me, that, that's a personal prideful anger. And, and I think what what, what we need to see is that the Old Testament and New Testament is a unity. And I think that's what you were trying to say, that mm -hmm. God isn't different from one to the other, mm -hmm. even though it appears that he works different. It, it, what, what's unique in the New Testament is that it appears that, that we are in a season where God is not acting in as much direct um, kind of manifestation of what people might call his anger. But he is looking forward to a day of judgment. And if you read the book of Revelation and you see where the New Testament is moving, you realize that God is the same God. He is a loving God, but he's angry to defend his reputation, his glory, the goodness of people, the wholeness of people. And when people uh, counter those things and go their own way, that incurs the judgment or the wrath of God which is a good wrath, a good justice. We wouldn't want to live in a universe without a God who would ultimately make all things right. 
what's hard is we live in this season, this time, when, when we don't always see that other than maybe some natural consequences that are hard to say, is that God? Is it not God? And that's dangerous because then whenever people start to say, well, you know, the tower fell, you, you know, or something, um, then you start to say, you know, wh- where does that fit in? I, mm-hmm. I think that was an earlier question we talked about here. So, 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 so being able to say, say that God's wrath in the Old Testament is actually part of his love to defend his glory and to make things right for people. And, and what we ultimately see is those things marry perfectly on the cross. Mm-hmm. What we see is when Jesus was crucified, that, that the wrath of God for sin was addressed in the cross, and yet his love was also present. And that is part of what makes Jesus so beautiful, so worthy of worship and adoration, is, is that it addresses both issues so perfectly. So, mm-hmm. Jenna, thank you for uh, for joining us today. Thanks for and, having me. Uh, have a great day. Thank you for coming along for Ask a Pastor. If you have questions, send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com and we'd be happy to interact with them. Mm-hmm.